the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. My name's Ian Tullock, and I'm here with Anthony Petrielli. How you doing, Anthony? Good, man. How about you? I'm not doing as well as Brian Burke. He has uh, landed a new position as the president of hockey operations for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Ron Hextall is going to be his general manager. Big news in the NHL. I know we're going to spend most of this podcast talking about the Leafs, but I had to lead off with that because, man, that hit my Twitter timeline and I wasn't ready for it. Old friend Brian Burke, now uh, back off television. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Tyler Biggs, uh, you know, there were a lot of moments as a Leafs fan over the last decade where I think back to Brian Burke frustrating me as a general manager of the team that I was rooting for. But watching the analysis on sports, and I can understand why people in this industry like him. I can understand why he has that kind of appeal to the old school crowd. I'm just not sure in the modern game of hockey when it comes to player evaluation and building a contender. I, I don't know. Uh, we'll see how he does, but... I want to talk about the Leafs this week. Do you have any final thoughts to wrap up, Burke, before we get into our Leafs discussion? I just think it's interesting that he goes with Ron Hextall because Hextall was so methodical and long-term thinking in Philly. And Burke has stated like a number of times, like he's not a patient man. And like Pittsburgh's not really in like a be patient situation. So just the contrast of that is going to be interesting to me. Like, what kind of direction are they going to go in? And also, I'll just say, I still think that the uh, the rats are taking over the game is one of the funnier press conferences I've seen a Leafs general manager conduct. I mean, there was the famous truculence, pugnacity, uh, you know, wanting to block a shot with your face. There's a lot of good quotes to come out of any Brian Burke press conference. Whether or not he's wearing the tie or if he has it on as a scarf, there's always some good Brian Burke stuff there, but... The Leafs are coming off a three-game winning streak against the Vancouver Canucks. Frankly, we're not really sure what to take out of it because Vancouver's clearly in the Ottawa tier of teams right now as opposed to a legitimate contender for the lead in this division. The Leafs dominated them in the first two games. In the third game, they got dominated for the first 40 minutes and then came out in the third and dominated. So, I don't know. We could break down the Canucks in detail. Frankly, I'm not sure how much value we can get out of that. One thing that is of value in my opinion is this two games uh coming up this week against the montreal canadians wednesday at 7 30 saturday seven o'clock hockey night in canada this is the first time i think we're actually going to get to see what this leafs team is because i think both teams have had a chance to try to figure out what they are i know the leafs are still trying to figure out the offensive side of things they finally got some goals against the canucks there but again the canucks can't really defend so how much do you really take out of that i take almost nothing out of that uh leafs vancouver uh series because if Vancouver is going to play like that I mean there's really not much to say like Travis Green just (laughs) I felt bad for him more than anything because he's sitting there and he's just like we're just not a good team like you could you he knew it right like after the last game like they played about as well as they could have played for two periods the Leafs played about as bad as they could have for two periods and even then I was like they're still probably going to win this game right like they're going to try for five minutes and that should be about enough to get them through this. And it was. So um, breaking anything down further than that is, I don't know, kind of silly. With the Leafs, their ability to generate offense off the rush, I think Justin Bourne did a great job breaking this down. If the other team's forwards aren't back-checking and they're just giving you all that open space in the neutral zone, it's very easy for a team like Toronto to rack up a bunch of goals. 
But that's not going to happen in the playoffs against a strong, structured defensive team. And I think the Montreal Canadiens are a perfect example of a team that actually plays well at even strength and will give us an idea of what the Leafs would be going against when they're facing some tough defensive teams. But again, this might, this is the nature of the Canadian division. There aren't many good teams that can defend. I think Montreal is probably the only team that can realistically defend. The Leafs are trying to improve in that component of their game, but it's tough to say if they're really there or not because they haven't faced tough competition at this point. Yeah, and I, I think the interesting thing for me watching uh... – Leafs Habs and and just kind of digesting the whole series is the Habs are a legitimate four line team like they're deep they they don't have the top end talent up front that the Leafs do and I know Suzuki's hot right now and he looks really good and Toffoli's playing out of his mind and so on and so forth but to like yeah to Foley they just but they're not these guys are not Austin Matthews uh they're not Mitch Marner at least not right now anyway um so with that being said I think Montreal actually feels pretty good about rolling four lines against the Leafs, which are kind of like a two-line team, if we're being honest. Almost one and, and a half with the way that that Neilander Tavares line's going. We'll talk more about that in a bit more detail here. So, like, how do you kind of feel? And, you know, the Leafs were down 3-1 in that season opener. And if Weber doesn't shoot the puck over the glass to make it a five-on-three that the Leafs cashed in on five-on-three and then the five-on-four to tie it going into the third... I don't know. They probably would have felt pretty good about what was happening. And, and hey, it did happen. And the Leafs did come back. And that a testament to how explosive they are offensively. But in a long grinding series, if you're playing four lines and you're just consistently wearing out a few guys, like you have to feel okay about that. You know, nobody should feel great playing a playoff series against the Leafs. But I think that's the general Hab strategy there. At the same time, as of the time we're recording this, the Leafs are 10-2-1. We tend to criticize this team. We tend to dive really deep into the microanalysis of everything instead of just focusing on all the positives. That's not as fun. We tend to focus on the negatives in Leafs land. We're used to it throughout the course of our lives. It's just kind of who we are at this point. So if we're going to dive into our critical eye here and try to break things down in a bit more detail, I know you wanted to do a rapid fire kind of quick topics, quick hits. Maybe we'll quickly touch on a few topics for like a minute or two and then move on to the next one. I know PTI was a show that you and I both watched a lot growing up, so we'll go PTI style here. You had a few topics lined up for us. I still watch PTI, just to clarify. I'm gonna oh, sorry, I didn't mean to treat it, it like today. a kid thing. I love Tony <laughs> Kornheiser, Michael Wilbon. I grew up on that stuff. That's, that's probably why I'm doing this right now. Yeah, and they don't talk about hockey, so here we are. First rapid thoughts, I'll send it to you, Canadian division. Just thoughts about what it means to play in the Canadian division and how much meaning you can take out of it? Yep, how good you think it is, how bad you think it is, what kind of impact you think the strength of or weaknesses of it is having, so on and so forth. Coming into the season, I thought Ottawa would be the one true weak team that separated itself from the other teams, and I'm realizing that Vancouver is in that neighborhood as well. If you look at the five-on-five shots, chances that they're giving up, they just haven't been a strong team this season. I don't know what's going on with Nate Schmidt. I don't know what's going on with a lot of their defense. I don't know what's going on with their top players. JT Miller was an elite 200-foot player last year, and he's done nothing at 5-on-5 this season. So we're looking at the Canadian division. We're going, okay, the Montreal Canadiens are a strong 200-foot team that you should be afraid of. The Leafs are a high-power offensive team who added that TJ Brody on their defense pairings. Now they're a team that maybe can defend a little bit better, but we're still not sure what they are up front because of some of the depth issues on the Tavares-Nylander line. 
Winnipeg, all of a sudden, with Pierre-Luc Dubois, looks like a very deep team at 5-on-5. Five five. Their defense has been playing a lot better than I expected. I thought it would be Josh Morrissey and company kind of really struggling to prevent scoring chances against, but they've surprised me. So I think there's kind of a mid-tier of teams with that Edmonton, Calgary, not quite sure what to make of them. Winnipeg, I would put slightly above Calgary, and then Montreal, Toronto, kind of in that top tier there. Am I misevaluating things there? Maybe it's because of those uh, central teams, those teams in kind of the, the prairies. I'm not sure where to rank them right now. I think you're probably being a little bit generous to Edmonton. Like on any given night, McDavid and Dreisaitl can go off and they could beat you. But like over the course of a season, I mean, they're just, they're not a team that I worry about. You can just leave them on the, the ice reality. for the last five minutes of a game though. Yeah. And you can turn to Mike Smith to try to save your season at, at 39 years old or whatever it is. But Ultimately, I just look and think the last time we had a shortened season, it was 48, so it was a little bit less than the 56 they're scheduled to play this year. But we saw definitely some overreactions and misevaluations based on a smaller sample. I think this is even worse because this is so far off from just a regular 82 guy. 82 game season uh, where you're constantly like flowing in and out of teams and divisions and opponents. You're just, it's a set schedule. You kind of like, it's a little bit of a baseball series and you're figuring out tendencies and adjusting. And ultimately like the thing I learned the most watching Vancouver and you know, the Habs just ran them over for three straight games. And after the first one, I'm like, Vancouver is definitely going to respond. And they didn't because they weren't able to. And then going into game three, I was like, Vancouver is definitely going to respond. Like they can't get blown out three times in a row. And they did. And then we watched against the Leafs and, you know, the Leafs come out, hand them pretty easily a loss. Game two, I'm like, maybe they'll adjust. Nothing. Game three, I'm like, this is as good as Vancouver can play. And it literally doesn't matter. So I think we're just going to see some just in general, um, some thoughts that probably aren't really as true over the course of a regular season being formed because of the competition. So I think that is going to, inevitably be problematic but for the Leafs purposes like this is a clear path to to winning a division as they're going to get like Boston is is leading theirs Tampa's leading theirs I think Florida has one loss like they've been in a really good division for years the Leafs have always been a good team they've just had that constant roadblock and now they really don't so the other thing you've got written for rapid fire topics here is second line left winger and I think that refers specifically to the fact that Tavares Nylander at five and five it just hasn't looked right. It hasn't been clicking to the degree that we think it should be based on both players' talent level. Nylander has made a few special passes this year where he's getting his teammates a wide-open net. But I think we know that there's more that could be uh, generated there offensively. We could blame it all on Jimmy VC. We could blame it all on Wayne Simmons, the few games he played there. But I think it's a, it's a bigger issue. It's the fact that there isn't someone better who can come in and take that spot, which is why the Leafs are looking to trade for a player if you could acquire someone in the NHL right now, realistically, are there any guys who come to mind for you? It's tough to say because of of COVID and the rules. Like, is uh, is Jersey out? I'd be slightly interested in Kyle Palmieri. I know he's a little bit more of the same, but like, he's he's a legit like thirty goal guy. Um, but you know, I think the bigger point is I don't think they have an internal solution. Uh, I think we'll see. I I would try Joe Thornton there when he comes back. I definitely wouldn't put him back and take Hyman off that line. You could throw uh, Hyman with Tavares and Nylander. I mean, he works everywhere. He would, but like, I'll still stand by it. I just, I don't want to see Joe Thornton at that age and 
his ability now going against top lines on other teams. Like I, I just want to see the Leafs load up and like, it just made no sense. Even that first game against the Habs to me, which was actually a game. It was like, we kind of putzed around and then we got to the third and it was like, all right, let's, let's take this seriously and put, put Hyman on the first line. Like that's kind of what it felt like. Like, like, it's okay, what we're out of time. doing all season, really, is throwing Hyman on the ice in high-leverage situations. Uh, you know, Joe Thornton, I kind of like the idea of certain offensive zone situations. He's a good passer. Yeah. If you look at the five-on-five shots and scoring chances when Thornton played with Matthews Marner, they were also playing Riley Brody together, so there were five guys on the ice who could all pass. I like the idea of it. It was working. Is it something that would work in the playoffs over a larger sample? That's a, a question that's to be determined, but it was working. But was it working because he was playing with Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner or because he was doing anything of note? Because I very rarely was like looking and being like, like Joe Thornton is carrying the mail here or doing something of a notable contribution to get this line where they're at. I think sometimes it's the continuation of a passing sequence for me. I know if you look at Nylander and uh, Tavares, when they pass it to Simmons off the rush and then he can't complete that next pass. It's part of the reason he doesn't have any assists at 5-on-5. Five five. But if Thornton, when he gains the blue line, he's able to make the drop pass. He's able to make the next play. And Corey Schneider, who does the manual tracking, he's, he's uh, put out a lot of microstats about the zone exits and zone entries. His latest research shows that over the last four years, if you're able to create a passing sequence of one, two, or three passes after gaining the blue line, it creates a much higher shooting percentage for your team. So the idea of having Thornton to, there to help get those passing sequences going, I've always liked the idea of it. I'm just not sure if it was something that would work over a large sample against the other team's best players. And I guess that would be your biggest fear. I think I would like him. I'd like the idea of him with Tavares and Nylander. Like both guys shoot and, you know, just have Thornton tee them off. And they already play like favorable offensive situations anyway. So you might as well just put Thornton with them and see how it goes. But when we talk about that, so the next rapid fire thought is we're going to go with Kerfoot at center. A guy who played primarily with John Tavares at five on five last year was his most common line mate. The numbers liked him last year. Apparently they don't like him as much this year. Yeah, no, uh, one of the worst on the team shot differential scoring chance differential. And that adds up with what my eyes have been seeing. I haven't loved him. Well, I'm trying to ask myself when I'm evaluating these players, okay, what are they trying to accomplish? Are they accomplishing it? Alexander Kerfoot coming into the season, okay, he's supposed to be a defensive checking third-line center. So I'm going to be grading him on how well he plays defensively. Is he winning puck battles? Is he getting back in even-man rush situations to make sure the other team doesn't get any two-on-ones? Is he settling things down in the defensive zone? I think he's been all right in those departments, but the issue for me his value when he came to the team, when I tried to do a big Alex Kerfoot piece on what was he in Colorado and what did the Leafs see in him, it was the fact that he created so much off the rush and transition, he'd exit the defensive zone at a high level, he'd enter the offensive zone at a high level, and then he'd make that next pass, kind of like what we were talking about with Joe Thornton, creating some kind of passing sequence to help create some offense. He hasn't really done that in Toronto. I haven't loved it. Off the rush, he's kind of predictable. He had the two-on-one chance the other night where if he opened up some more space with his skating, he would have been able to create the passing lane for Nylander. But he skated right into the defender, lost the puck. It's plays like those that drive you nuts when you see them over and over again. And with Kerfoot, he doesn't seem defensively responsible enough to play against the other team's best players. And he's not really giving you much offensively either. I'm left asking what he really does at this point, other than maybe kill some penalties and win some strong side draws. I I don't know what he does. 
takes shifts, skates fast. So once in a while you look and you're just like, wow, he's fast. But yeah, ultimately, like kind of really to to your point there, it just he, he doesn't seem strong enough to me, uh, like physically speaking, uh, to constantly be a checker. Um, like we, he does lose his fair share of battles, especially in the D zone. We saw him flub um, a clearing attempt on the penalty kill, which led to a goal. There was another goal that Tanner Pearson scored. I believe it was the first uh, first of the three game set. And, and Kerfoot just completely turned the wrong way and looped behind the net for no reason. Um, <laughs> While well, the guy that, the area that he should have been in, there was a goal being scored. I think Bourne had a good tweet on that, just kind of showing the defense's own coverage and how he's supposed to be in the slot and he, he was, got turned the wrong way. Yeah, and, and so, I don't know, you're just kind of watching those things. I've kind of been on this train for a long time now, and, and I don't really get it. Like, he started the season off, and his skating looks great, like, not going to take anything away from that whatsoever. But it was like he skated fast for a few games and people were like, Kerfoot's a good good 3C. Like, he continues to look good. And, like, he's not really doing anything, though. Like, if we're being honest, like, and I think the Leafs knew this. Like, they started him with Ilya Mikheyev and Zach Hyman. They're like, we're going to, like, neuter our top six a little bit and we're going to give you our third and fourth best wingers to insulate you. Our two best defensive wingers. Right? And, like... And then people are like, oh, he looks good. And, like, last year was, like, the same thing. Like, the numbers look good. Like, yeah, you played with John Tavares all year, and you had 28 points. Like, that that's not that good. Like, you, you played primarily with Tavares in a top six role. Tavares, like, <laughs> all I was going to say is Matt Molson is, like, he's never working another second in his life because of John Tavares. Like, that's how good John Tavares is. I remember breaking down the John Tavares effect. If you look at players, the two or three seasons they played with him and the two or three seasons afterwards, P.A. Parento, Matt Molson, Kyle Poso. there's a long list of guys whose production just dropped off a cliff after they played with John Tavares. When you're playing with him and you scored at, what, 28-point pace? And that's even with some power play two time. I mean... I haven't loved him on the power play, but I don't want to get mad at a player for not being a power play weapon if that's not what their role is. But again, you're trying to find value here in a guy who's making $3.5 million. You don't trust him against the other team's top players. You're not using him, at least effectively, in my opinion, on the power play. He's pretty good on the penalty kill, but is he really worth $3.5 million? I guess, but you were hoping that he'd provide more value than that, I think was the hope with that contract. I'd say he's not worth three and a half million dollars. I mean, as of right now, I'd say that. I'm hoping he can provide more, but maybe that's just the inner Leafs fan in me. The next thing I see on on, the, on your list here for rapid fire topics really upsets me. It's the name Sam Bennett. I've been seeing it a lot lately. I don't want to see Sam Bennett in a Leafs uniform. Do you? At the right price, I'd consider it. Just basically, he's looked really good in the playoffs. I, I know Mark Vergevin always has the quote. Elliot Friedman always quotes this. Some guys get you there and some guys get you through. Hey, Billy Leno helps get you through the playoffs. That's why you, you pay big for playoff performance instead of, uh, you know, when a guy shows that he's not a good player over a large sample in the regular season. Can we definitively say that Sam Bennett's, like, not a good player? I mean, he's an NHL player, but is he an above-average NHL player? No. He, is, is he a no. third-liner? What is he? Yeah, but like we just talked about Kerfoot and he's making like a million dollars more a year and he's two years older than him and really hasn't shown much in any critical game. At least Sam Bennett's a little bit younger, a little bit cheaper, has shown up in, you know, the odd big game, whatever the case is. And I probably would like him better as a left wing option uh, than Kerfoot. 
see, honestly, I don't see much of a difference between a Sam Bennett and a Jimmy Vc, just in terms of their they they produce at about the same rate throughout their careers. Underwhelming. They were guys who were supposed to be much better offensively than they ended up being. And now we're not really sure what they are and where they should play in an NHL lineup. You see some offensive talent, but they're not good enough defensively for you to trust them against the other team's best players. I don't know. I, I And the fact that he's making – what's his contract right now for like Sam 2. Bennett? 2.55 a year. I, the Leafs are tied up against the cap, and he, we're talking about guys who are efficient on their contracts. That's not an efficient contract for my money. I, I only think you could justify it around a Kerfoot thing where they're actually saving money and opening up a little, like for something else in addition to, right? It's like, let's kind of quasi trade players here um, and open up a little cap along the way. But like, I don't know, to me, I like, I like Travis Dermott. I think he's always shown well when they've given him like real opportunity and real ice time. I don't like him as a third pairing guy. I don't think he, I don't think he's good in a role where he's playing like, you know, 16 minutes a night that's not for him but we've seen when he's moved up when they've had injuries like when everybody was injured last year and he was playing with justin hole on the top pairing like he looked good so i could go on a rant about travis dermott i could probably write a book about travis dermott but it's <laughs> it's weird at this point with the leafs defense i, I don't know miko letton's starting to look a bit better Zach Bogosian looks like he's gonna play 56 games this year and i, don't I told think you last net- week that letton looks good shouldn't be surprised yet <laughs> It's, it just upsets me knowing that Travis Dermott isn't going to get to play when I think he's a good 5-on-5 defenseman in the NHL, but it is what it is at this point, I guess. Did you want to go to your uh, your game-winning segment, your overreactions, underreactions? Are we ready for do that? We wanna do, do we want to do last rapid thoughts on 11-7? and seven? Totally of. ruined the transition. All right, let's, let's finish up our, our rapid-fire moments here. <laughs> um, quickly, I want to say, I just I think it totally ruins the flow of the game. Um I think there's just a lot of points where it's awkward. You see awkward line combinations. It always feels at some point like the coach has lost the bench and you're like, why are these guys out here? We're talking about 11 forward 7D here? Yeah, like I think the forward lines just like go out the box and not in a good way. Like in like a, this is weird. Like why are these guys out here together way? Um, Like how did Barabanov get off the bench kind of like thoughts? You're just like, is is that the combination we want to see? And I also think just if you're a defenseman, you hate it. Like, like, Sandine played five minutes last night. Like, thank God. Like, what? Like, what a waste of time. Okay. I don't love that. If you're going to use 11 forward 7D, I'd like the seventh defenseman to get more than five minutes. I think that's a bit useless. But if you look historically at when teams have used it, Tampa Bay is a great example. The evidence shows that they performed better when they used the 11 forward 7D setup than when they used the 12 forward 6D setup. But I think a lot of the times we're uncomfortable with stuff that feels unfamiliar and we're just so used to a 12 forward lineup and the fact that, oh, you have six defensemen, you don't have seven defensemen. When Carlo Koliakovo goes on the radio and complains about it because his minutes got cut back when they did it, I, you know who loves it? The guys who get the extra ice time. And for those guys, they're your star players. You're paying Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner a lot of money, and then they play 25 minutes in a game where it's pretty close the entire way. That has value. Do you want to do that? every single game for the entire season no you're probably going to tire them out but I don't mind 11 forward 7d because it just feels like something that the evidence shows it works you get your best players more minutes they're the ones impacting the outcome of the game but the defensemen hate it because they don't get to get into a proper rhythm I'd say do what works at the end of the day but I guess when you're giving Sandine five minutes I'm not sure if you could count that as working because that's your top prospect and he's not playing 
And realistically, the Leafs just play the tar out of Matthews and Marner anyways. Like, they don't care if there's 12, 13, 14. They could dress 20 forwards. Those guys are playing 20-plus minutes a night. Like, I don't know if it really not under Mike Babcock, their ice time. Be. Yeah, that we're not going to go into old friend Mike Babcock, but I'm sure when he ever gets hired again, if, when, whatever, uh, we'll have a little chat about him too. So, overreaction, underreaction. Now I won't ruin um, the segment transition. Um First thoughts, uh, analysis on playing the Canucks, overreaction, underreaction. <laughs> we, we talked about this in the beginning. So <laughs> I, it's so difficult to analyze play against a team that is just, let's say, bottom five in the NHL in terms of quality, and that's what the Canucks look like to me. And it's shocking because when you look at their high-end talent, Ilias Pettersson, Quinn Hughes, those are the guys who are supposed to drive results and they're getting outplayed at even strength. They're getting outshot and outchanced. That's not what we're used to seeing, but it's happened this year. So anytime you evaluate a game against a super weak opponent, I think we tend to overreact to those games. So I'll say that we're overreacting to any analysis against the Vancouver Canucks this year because as of right now, they haven't figured it out, and I'm not sure if they ever will this season, but I don't want to take too much out of a game against the Ottawa Senators, and I'm going to realize that, okay, I also need to have that caveat when I watch the Vancouver Canucks play. Yeah, and I'm going to say overreaction too. And um, really, it's more geared towards the bottom guys. Like, we know that Matthews and, and Marner and, and all these guys are good. We know the power play is good. We know, like, we don't need a three game series against the Canucks to uh, confirm that. But when we see guys like Nick Patan get an opportunity and then, you know, he makes a nice saucer pass and Spezza scores a nice goal, and everyone's like, this guy's great. Should be on the fourth line. These are overreactions. Like, maybe he is, but like, I need to see him do it against good teams because when they play good teams and he's on the ice, I'm like, when is the shift over? <laughs> and when we see them in the playoffs and like Keith like literally plays these lines like two, three minutes against good teams, we're like, this is why it's an overreaction because he's looking down the bench and he's like, I don't trust these guys. Most coaches don't trust their fourth line, to be fair. How many teams are truly no. four lines deep? But you can trust, you at least trust them to push for 10 minutes. But when the, we know when the, and we'll see what happens against the Habs. But generally, what we've seen under Keefe so far is when they're playing a good team, like these lines are living in the five minute range. Like, like they're barely serviceable. And you're seeing with the bottom pair as well. You're seeing that it's really the top four that are getting a lot of minutes Jake Muzzin, Justin Hall, Morgan Riley, TJ Brody, which again makes sense. That's where you're paying your money. So you might as well play them. Yeah. But like, it's like they they teeter on too much, like with some of the ice time. So overreaction on that. We don't want to spend too much time on it. But second one, I think, is a little bit more noteworthy, which is split power play units. Do you like it or not? Is overreaction, underreaction to this strategy? So I've always been pro uh, top loading your, your first unit power play and playing them for 75% of the time, 80% if you can. Screw it. Leave your best player out there for the entire power play, an Ovechkin style. I've been... Climbing for the Leafs back in the day, I wanted them to leave JVR out there for the full two minutes because I thought, this guy's a specialist. Just let him do his specialist thing. And Austin Matthews, my argument is, hey, he doesn't need to be too involved with the entries on the power play. That's kind of a waste of his energy. Just let him set up and do what he does best in the offensive zone. So I always thought that you need to give your best players as much time as humanly possible on the power play. And the way to do that is by top-loading it. The Leafs have two effective units this year. Will that still be the case with Wayne Simmons injured? I mean, you could. I don't think he was the secret sauce on an Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner unit. I think they were the ones that were driving it. But it's worth noting that Wayne Simmons led the NHL 
in rebound chances, inner slot chances, deflections in front. I know Sport Logic put out a, a stat on the broadcast breaking down just how effective Wayne Simmons has been on that top unit power play. He's going to miss six He's an elite net weeks. front guy. He's an elite net front guy. He's it's, good at what he does. True. So if you can find guys who can get the pucks into the dangerous areas, which, by the way, is the hard part about creating offense in the NHL, is finding those high-skill guys who can actually break down a defense. But if you have the guys who can do that, having a guy up front in front of the net who can deflect and win those battles afterwards, I think that has a lot more value than maybe we're realizing. And I'm wondering if that Wayne Simmons unit if their high danger chances and their deflection chances and their rebound chances, I'd be curious if those go down significantly in these next six weeks. So I think, I think we're underreacting to this because ultimately I've kind of maintained from the start, like, I don't think it's real. Like I pointed it out on the weekend um, in the, in the latest notebook that went out, but like, you know, in the game, like Nylander didn't even play two minutes on the power play and Kerfoot played over five. And that's fine against Vancouver. Like, you're going to get away with it. You're going to get away with it against Ottawa. You're probably going to get away with it against Edmonton. You're probably going to get away with it against Calgary. But, like, if we're looking at a playoff series and, like, after a few games, the Leafs are down or they're tied 1-1, I'm like, Nylander's played, like, two and a half minutes on the power play a night and Kerfoot's played five and a half. Like, that's not going to go over well. We have seen them go to it, though. In high-leverage situations, we've seen them go to their four best forwards and Morgan Riley. As they should, though, but I think they're kind of setting themselves up, and I think that they will slowly like get to a point where they move away from this and really stack up the unit, but they're kind of setting themselves up right now where like they would get to the playoffs and not play this the way that they are now. Because I don't, I don't think they could justify that ice time allocation the way it's currently being divvied up. Part two to that is... Optimally, so we just talked about Wayne Simmons, elite net front guy, which is true. Like, I don't really think his stride is there much. I don't think he's particularly effective at five on five, but he's he's a great power play player and he brings a lot of uh, intangible, so to speak. But I think if they're if you're actually saying like who's our starting five on the power play, like you're you're putting Wayne Simmons in front of the net, you're putting Matthews and Marner on the half wall, and to be honest, you're putting John Tavares in that bumper role. Like he's, he's looked good there and he's been effective there for years. And you're putting Morgan Riley up top, which leaves William Nylander off the top unit. But I, I think, think in a high level situation, if you desperately need a goal, I think you're throwing Nylander out there and they're finding ways to get each other open. Nylander, a lot of the times he'll go below the goal line to get himself open and then make a pass from behind the net. That's where he's at his best. Yeah, I think so. But I think if they're like looking at it and they're being honest, they're probably like, this would be the five that we would put out, but we're not going to do that to Nylander. Like when Keith got hired, like one of the first things he did and made a serious point of was like, we're putting Nylander with the rest of the guys on the top power play unit. Like we don't want him to feel excluded. Like we want to put responsibility on him and make him feel part of the core group. Rightfully so. He's really good and he's making $7 million a year. He should be part of that group. But I think part of it is like, we want to split it up so that nobody's feeling like they're kind of lost in the shuffle I just think ultimately, like, they're going to have to eventually transition to more of that, like, here's our, our real top line unit, Simmons or Nylander or whatever, because um, that's just really how it's going to work. I think they also know that they don't really have a line that they could put out there after that unit is on for five on five. Like, I guess it would be Mikheyev, Kerfoot, and Hyman. Babcock used to freak out about this, and it always drives me nuts when coaches freak out about the line that they throw out after a power play because, realistically, for two minutes, you've just played your eight most skilled forwards and your two most skilled defensemen. So the 
forwards who have legs for the next shift are going to be your three least skilled forwards and two defensemen who are probably not the greatest puck movers. It's just kind of what happens. It's the nature of a post... Sorry, let me say that again. It's the nature of a post-power play shift. And the nature of a post-penalty kill shift is that you're going to have your high skill players available. So I just think that's the nature of what happens right after a power play, and coaches tend to freak out about it. But I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I think there's some fairness to it, though, because if you don't score on a power play, and realistically, you don't score like 75-plus percent of the time unless you're like on an absolute heater the way the Leafs are right now you're like, at least we want to build some momentum and kind of tilt the ice into their zone. But if the next thing we're doing is we're putting out a line that's just going to get run over by the other team's top line, it's kind of just like, we've lost all that. In the flow of the game, of like what's happening, like they just, they killed it off. They, you know, feel good about themselves, whatever the case is. And all they've done is come back down the ice and put it back to us. So I, I get it as a fear though, especially if you're playing against a top line or top forwards that you're really worried about. All right, this last one here for overreaction, underreaction. I like that you included this. Resting Freddie. The rest that Frederick Anderson has been getting this season, or better yet, the lack thereof. I'm sure you think that we're underreacting to it. We are underreacting to it. I've had this conversation every year pretty much since he's come here. Like, why is he playing so much? Every year in the playoffs, he has not looked his best. Uh, He always goes on about, like, feeling good and wanting to play and like wanting to um, get in a flow and someone just has to step up and take the keys away from the guy just say like this is how much you're gonna play and like I don't really care if you like it because you know I think sometimes everyone's like we're being like overly critical I'm not like I just want to see them win in the playoffs for once yeah I was surprised Michael Hutchinson didn't get one of those starts against Vancouver I thought that would have been the time to get him in if you were gonna get him in I honestly might have started him on the Monday game and just said to the guys in the room before the game, like, like you have to try. Like, Yeah, the first two games like, you didn't have to worry about, but now you yeah. actually have to get a few goals because we're going to yeah. give up a few. <laughs> like, you, you know who's in that tonight, boys. Like, you can't, like, just go out for just a float. It's the Garrett and, Sparks effect. Yeah, right? But, like, yeah, I, don't, I just think we're huge. We're underreacting. Like, they got to rest this guy. Like, that's got to be a priority. We've just seen the movie play out too many times. What about you? I, uh... I think they really wanted Arundel for situations like this. I bet you they were really hoping they could squeak him through waivers and they weren't able to. Backup goaltending something that I don't like freaking out about too much, but also it's something that the Leafs haven't allocated a lot of resources to in the last few years. They did uh, via trade to acquire Jack Campbell. He also came with Kyle Clifford that the Leafs wanted to re-sign but didn't seem like Kyle Clifford was interested in re-signing here. I like Jack Campbell, but again, he's injured right now. Who's your third goalie? It was supposed to be Aaron Dell. You weren't able to hold on to him. Now you're down to your fourth goalie, and it's a guy that a lot of Leafs fans don't trust. I don't blame them. I know Sheldon Keefe is trying to pump his tires by saying that, oh, he's the only one who made it to the second round last year, but I think even he knows that he doesn't trust Michael Hutchinson. That's why he hasn't started him yet. So that's why we all know the answer is, oh, we wish we could rest Frederick Anderson, but are you going to start Michael Hutchinson against the Montreal Canadiens? I don't think you are. So... It's difficult. Until Jack Campbell's healthy, how many starts can you realistically get Michael Hutchinson in for? But when Babcock was here, everyone used to whine. They're like, you only start the backup goalie on the second half of a back-to-back, and that's what they're going to do with him. Maybe he plays the first game against Ottawa instead of the second one in the back-to-back. But like, how are you, like you're not even giving the guy a chance. I'd be like, it's Monday. Freddie, like, you start prepping for the Habs. We're going to put Hutch in on Monday. Let's see how you do. The Leafs have played well for two games here we have a little bit of a run a team that's not playing that well 
give the guy a chance. Like, I, they might have lost the way that the Leafs ended up playing, but, you know, that's really besides the point. At least you can say you're, you're at least being honest by him, but now probably not so much. All right, let's transition here to the stat of the week. It's our final segment. It's the one that I want to do the most because I'm a nerd. All right, the stat is 16. What do you think that is? Not Mitch Marner, that's for sure. No, Mitch Marner. That's uh, Mitch Marner's <laughs> contract value in AAV this year. No, 16 is Austin Matthews' career shooting percentage. He's taken a lot of shots at the NHL level, and he's still scoring on them at a ridiculous clip. We don't see many goal scorers maintain a high shot volume and a high shooting percentage. Usually it's either one or the other. You're either a volume shooter who just keeps launching pucks at the net, and eventually they're going to go in, kind of like Alex Ovechkin, or you're a high percentage shooter who only takes shots when it's the right time. Alex Tangay in his prime comes to mind for me. That was the exact same guy I was going to drop. Maybe Tangay Tyler Bozak, sure. prime Bozak, just never shooting, only on breakaways <laughs> and shootouts. Uh, but Austin Matthews is able to generate three or four shots a game and score on 16% of those shots. This year he's riding a bit of a high shooting percentage. He's, I think he's shooting over 20% as of right now. That probably will drop down. And we always talk about, us nerds, we talk about shooting percentage regression. You know, you're going to regress to the mean. You're going to regress to the mean. Austin Matthews has a different mean than other hockey players because his shooting ability and his ability to not just create volume but create quality at the same time and use that curl and drag wrister to create shots at different angles that goaltenders aren't able to stop. It really reminds me of Steven Stamkos in his prime in terms of the shot volume and shooting percentage combination. We don't see that. It's very rare. Guys don't do that. And Austin Matthews is doing it right now. And I'd say, if I had to make a bet right now, I'd say he's going to win the Rocket Richard. Which, by the way, we've been saying for the last couple of years, and then Alex Ovechkin always sneaks up in the last week or two and takes it away from him. But his ability to score goals, I know we talk about it all the time, but I still marvel at just how good this guy is at getting high-quality shots and converting on them at an elite rate. No one else in the league can really do it right now. I'm mainly just impressed by how much his shot, um, how he's diversified it is the best way to put it. Like he was really just like a snap and wrister kind of guy. And like his, like he scored on a, a one-timer against Vancouver. That it was a game winner this he week. He had that like, last year. He didn't have it up until last season. And you got to give that some, some love and some serious respect. I have actually a very quick stat for you before we wrap up here. Do you know how many points James Van Riefsdyk has this season? It was really high. I remember I was looking at point leaders, and I was trying to see where McDavid and Matthews were, and JVR was in there. And I was asking myself, what? Why is he so old? Old friend, JVR, 18 points in 13 games to start this season. Good for him. I'm happy for him. Good for him. I always liked JVR. Philly has always confused me because they signed a number of players, him and Kevin Hayes in particular, where I'm like, that's a terrible contract. It makes no sense. But here they are, and those guys don't look that bad. They healthy scratched Travis Konechny the other night. I remember they one year they went on a ten game winning streak and a ten game losing streak in the same season. It's just it's the most confusing team. I'm kind of glad I don't have to evaluate them. I'm kind of glad that I get focused on this Canadian division because anytime I ask Philadelphia Flyers fans like, "Hey, how's the team doing?" I always get these crazy reactions because no one really knows. <laughs> All right, any wrap up thoughts from you? Uh, just really that evaluating Vancouver Canucks hockey games is going to be difficult this year. And I think there is a true top tier in the Canadian division. The Leafs and the Habs, I think, have separated themselves from the other teams. 
And I'm really looking forward to these next two games to get to see how they match up against each other, to see how the Leafs do against a team who's actually really well-structured defensively. Yeah, I'm super pumped to see them play the Habs too. Uh, very excited. Honestly, if anything, it's just like, it's actually hopefully going to be a good hockey game because it wasn't good against Vancouver at any point. Like, I like I don't know. I guess potentially Leaf fans are just not really used to seeing the team win like this. So maybe that's exciting. But like, I don't find it exciting. I don't think the team is learning anything from it. The fact that they have to play these guys even more bothers me. The fact that they have to play, how many games do they have against Ottawa still to go? Like seven? Um, that's kind of depressing to think about. You know, same with even the games against Edmonton. Like, none of those games interest me whatsoever. But, like, 26 of their final 43-some-odd games are against either Montreal, Winnipeg, or Calgary. I think those should be 26 really good games, and I'm not really sure about the rest. Yeah, and especially with Pierre-Luc Dubois now coming into the fold in Winnipeg, that's going to be an interesting team to keep an eye on. So uh, we're, we're signing off right now. We're recording this, for the record, before the Montreal series. So when we come back next week, hopefully we'll have some meaningful takeaways about the Leafs because it's been difficult this season. It's such a weird year. We don't know what to take out of every game, but now we're going to get two very strong teams going up against each other in a back-to-back scenario. Looking forward to seeing what takeaways we come away from. So uh, I'll talk to you next week, Anthony. Anything else you wanted to touch on before we leave? Go Leafs, go. Go Leafs, go. All right, everyone. We'll talk to you (laughs) next week. Take it easy. You've been listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. For news, opinion, and analysis, make sure to go to mapleleafshotstove.com and join the conversation.